Good evening and welcome to Uni Church. My name is Lachlan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this evening. Great to be back with you. Kenny and I have been away the last couple of Sundays. It's been a great joy for us. We got to go down to Thames and join the Overseas Christian Fellowship at their annual camp. We got a great joy of digging into the doctrine of God with them. It was a great weekend down there. And then uh, we're very grateful to church for giving us a week of leave after that. So we've spent the last week away on holidays, went down to Tauranga and enjoyed some time down there. But it's great to be back with you this evening as we walk through this mini-series of prayer, taking three Sundays to learn from God how to pray. Uh, Last week was a cracker. If you didn't hear it, do go online and chase up the sermon. All our sermons do go up on our website, so if you ever miss one, you can hear back to it up on the website. Really do recommend going back and listening to last week. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be considering what the Old Testament has to say about prayer, and it was wonderful to hear that prayer read from 2 Chronicles 6. That's where we're going to kind of dig into and and launch through there a bit later on. Uh, While we were away on holidays, I noticed there was a big storm up here in Auckland, so Kenny and I missed that. I don't know if you were around for that. Uh, A lot of people lost power. Perhaps you lost power during that storm. It got me thinking that sometimes we just get so familiar with things that we start taking them for granted. They lose that sense of being special to us. Uh, becomes every day and, and commonplace. That's kind of what we do with electricity, right? Uh, it's, it's so commonplace, we just assume that tomorrow when I turn the light switch on, then the power's going to come on and there's going to be light. Until we stop and think about it a little bit, and I go, I actually have zero idea how electricity works. Like, what the heck is going on that's making that light shine on me right now? I, I don't know how that works. I don't know how it gets there. I don't know what goes wrong when the power goes out. Electricity, there was, there was a time when we marveled at it. We went, what on earth is this stuff? This is almost like magic. I was kind of like the iPad when that first came out. I still remember the the first advertisement from Apple and they're going, oh, it's like magic in your hands. These things that are wonderful for a time, but then we just get so used to it and it becomes commonplace. And then the storm comes through and knocks out the power and we're like, how do we even live now? I don't understand. Um, It can happen with things like electricity. It can happen as well with relationships. Perhaps a friendship where... There was once a time when you first met this friend and you were amazed at them. They were so constant, so loyal, so trustworthy, so funny. And you built this great friendship around them. But over time, you just grew used to it and you started taking that friend for granted. You stop appreciating them. You assume that whatever you do, however you treat them, they're just going to be there for you. That kind of attitude can kill a relationship, can't it? When one partner in the friendship just starts tapping out, and they tap out for a month or a couple of months, then the other partner starts to resent that. And their patience runs out and, and they can leave. I wonder if you've experienced the sadness of that. Or perhaps you've just seen it in a movie or a TV show. Perhaps you've seen a friend go through that kind of loss of a friendship. It's at that moment where we lose something that we realize how special it really was. What I want to do for us tonight is stop and ponder for a moment the amazing wonder that prayer is. Because I think sometimes we make it just so habitual, so commonplace, that we stop marveling at it. Or perhaps like in a friendship, we we tap out from God for a time. We, We stop relating to Him and we just think that in a month's time we can come back to Him as if nothing's been wrong. We presume upon God in prayer. So I want to reawaken for us tonight the sense that Christian prayer is actually an amazing wonder that it's something that we should marvel at, something we should appreciate regularly. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would teach us that about prayer this evening. Pray with me. Father, thank you that we can gather this evening to hear your word. 
Please teach us to pray. Show us tonight the privilege of Christian prayer that we might walk away from this place devoted to prayer and delighted in prayer. Amen. Now I'm just going to check, because with that crackle, is the speaker still working? Are we okay? Okay, good. I won't project my voice too much. Uh, you'll see, uh, you got handed on your way in an outline. Uh, in that outline, there's a space where you can take some notes for the sermon. Do let me point you to that tonight. You'll see, as you look through that outline, six different headings. What we're going to do this evening is really walk through the whole story of the Bible and consider the way that the theme of prayer develops along the way. So there's six headings, are six different sections of the Bible. We're not going to pick up on everything about all those different stages, but we're going to see what each of those stages teaches us about prayer. So the story of the Bible starts with the story of history. God creates the universe, the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. You find this story in the first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If you've not read them before, they're a wonderful section to read and to get a sense of where our universe comes from. Uh, Prior to God's act of creation, there's no space, there's no time, there's no matter, there's just God. From everlasting to everlasting, He is the eternal and living God. And then into this kind of nothingness, God does something amazing. He, He speaks and His Word brings things into existence. Suns, moons, planets, seas, lands, animals, trees, from the smallest subatomic particle to the largest and brightest star in the universe. God speaks and creates it. As the creator, God is immensely powerful and immeasurably creative. Now already we can see from this that when we pray to this God, we we never need to wonder if he's able to answer our prayer. Nothing is impossible with the God who can speak creation into existence. Now, the pinnacle, the high point of God's creation is humanity, male and female. God creates humans, and again, he does something amazing. He speaks to them. So he speaks them into existence, then he speaks to humanity. In doing that, he's entering into a relationship with humanity. He doesn't just create us to then kind of stand off at a distance and watch what happens. God creates humanity to be his representatives on the earth, his image bearers who will rule over the earth under his rule. And so God speaks to humanity. He enters into a personal relationship, a relationship where God speaks to people and people can respond back to God in speech, where they can pray to him. So in Genesis 1 verse 28, it should come up on the screen for you, we read that God blessed humanity And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. So here we find something that's core to being human. To be human is to rule with God over his world in a personal speaking relationship with him. Now this setup, this is good. This is good. But it's not the way the world is now we humans we foolishly took what was good and we threw it back in god's face this is what christians often talk about as the fall Uh, but i think that language is just a bit too i don't know polite it sounds like a british person saying oh no i've i've had a fall and scraped my knee oops a daisy you're like come on it's not a fall so you see in the outlines i've called this bit crash and burn 
That's what's happened. This is no small fall. Humanity crashed and burned. We blew up big time. The first humans, they were rebellious against God. They committed treason against God. God was the creator and ruler of the world, but the first humans said, we don't want you to rule over us. We want to be the rulers. We want to take matters into our own hands. Now, God's response to this rebellion, this treason, it's justified. He casts humanity out of his presence. At first, Adam and Eve, they were cast out from the garden, but God was gracious to them. He still spoke with them. But then their son, their firstborn son, Cain, well, he goes and murders his younger brother, Abel, and as a consequence of that, he gets cast out from God's presence entirely. Have a look at Genesis 4, verse 13, up on the screen again for you. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear, since you're banishing me today from the soil, and I must hide myself from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. When we rebel against God, God gives us a dreadful consequence. We get cast out from his presence, completely cut off from his presence. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and I I thought it's kind of like when, uh, if you're ever at a rugby game, uh, and you choose to take off your clothes and streak along the field. Don't ever do that. Bad idea. Uh, If you do that, you get kicked out from the football stadium, right? And you get banned from ever coming back. You've lost your privilege of being in that space. And so God, when we commit treason against him, he says, no, you've got no place here anymore. Out of my presence. And so at this point in the story, when humanity crashes and burns, there's now a great barrier to prayer. There's a barrier to us coming before God and speaking to him. We are sinful humanity, rebellious humanity, and he is a holy God. Humanity cannot simply walk into the presence of God. As history unfolds from this point, humanity on the whole gets worse and worse. Having been cut off from the presence of God, humans have cut themselves off from his good guidance. So while we're meant to rule over the world, we no longer have God helping us in that task. And so humanity spirals downward into violence, sexual immorality, drunkenness, deception. It's not a pretty picture. It's the world we live in today. But in the midst of this world, God, well, he wants us to return to this personal speaking relationship that he created us for. He wants reconciliation. He wants us to come back to him. So rather than destroying all of humanity, God acts to fix the relationship. And God does this by graciously choosing one man. His name's Abram. And God makes a covenant with him. A covenant is just an agreement that's built on promises. And God promises to Abram to once again bring blessing to the whole earth, to all the nations of the earth. And he's going to do it through Abram's family. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're kicking off a series in Genesis where we'll meet Abram and we'll see these promises and we'll see it play out through the first few generations of his family. It's going to be a fantastic series starting in a couple of weeks. Do come back then. But God promises to work through this family of Abram. And as we see history go on, his family turns into a nation, the nation of Israel. And God gives Israel the special privilege to be able to hear from him and to respond to him as their creator in prayer. This is where we get to 2 Chronicles 6. 2 Chronicles 6 picks up a high point in Israel's history. Solomon is ruling as their king. 
We're in the 900s BC. We, we are talking about real history and real people and places at this point. This isn't fictional. Solomon was a real king ruling over Israel about 900s BC. And Solomon's built this magnificent temple for God. Like, no joke, this is fully blinged up. This is a massive temple full of gold. And, and we focus in, in 2 Chronicles 6, on the prayer of dedication. It's like an opening ceremony for this new temple. And as we see Solomon's prayer, I want you to notice the difficulty of prayer. See, although God has chosen Israel, they are still sinful and rebellious like the rest of humanity. They can't just simply speak to God. This barrier is still there and needs to be overcome. And so God's given Israel a whole system of sacrifices that have to take place before they can come to him with any request, before they can get guidance from him. So before we get to 2 Chronicles 6, and can I urge you to have that open in your Bibles to track along with me, and you might flick the page before and have a look at 2 Chronicles 5 verse 6. Before we get to the opening ceremony and see Solomon's prayer, we find in 2 Chronicles 5 verse 6, King Solomon and the entire congregation of Israel who had gathered around him were in front of the ark, sacrificing sheep and cattle that could not be counted or numbered because there were so many. Now, that's probably not an exaggeration in terms of the number. Later on in chapter 7, we find Solomon slaughtering 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. We're talking thousands, hundreds of thousands of animals, and they can count that many. So this is countless. This is more than that. These are so many animals. This is not some pristine, sparkling, clean building opening. There's blood everywhere. Animals getting killed. Now, why? It's not senseless animal slaughter. But this is a reminder that what we as humans deserve for our rebellion against God is death. That if we were to just walk up into God's presence as sinful humanity, we would die. And so instead of that happening, God has set up this system of sacrifice where an animal gets killed instead and we can then approach God in prayer. Or Israel at that point could approach God in prayer. All of these animals sacrificed to teach Israel that there is great difficulty in approaching God. Now, we'd be pleased to know that these sacrificed animals, they didn't just rot away on the ground. They became the basis of a massive feast that lasted for seven days for Israel. Along with this building opening, Israel as a whole nation just feasted off all these animals. A great celebration. But I hope you see the reinforced point that humans approaching God in prayer, that is no simple thing. It is not to be taken for granted. God is the holy, sovereign creator. We are rebellious creatures of dust. And the difficulty of prayer also appears in the words of Solomon's prayer. You might have heard the repetition as Edmund read it for us. See, what's Solomon actually asking God for in this prayer? This is what I want you to read along with me from verse 18 of chapter 6. Have a look and see what Solomon's praying for here. Verse 18. Will God indeed live on earth with man? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I've built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you, so that your eyes watch over this temple day and night toward the place where you said you would put your name, and so that you may hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petitions of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray toward this place, May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. 
What's Solomon asking God to do? Well, he's asking that God would hear the prayers of Israel. He's not assuming that God would do that. He knows that God is immense, eternal, uncontainable. And he knows that he and his nation are sinful. But he cries out to God, verse 21, hear our prayers and forgive us. As the prayer goes on, you see all these different circumstances that might happen in the life of Israel, but the repeated refrain is, may you hear and forgive. So verse 22, when someone wrongs their neighbor and they come to the temple for judgment, well, verse 23, may you hear in heaven and act. Verse 24, if Israel are defeated in battle because they've sinned and they turn back and plead for mercy. Verse 25, may you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Verse 26, when it's not raining in Israel because the people have sinned against you, may you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Verse 30, verse 33, verse 35, verse 39, the same repeated refrain, may you hear in heaven. And then he sums it up in verse 40. Now, my God, please let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. Solomon's not assuming that God will hear the requests of Israel. He's not assuming that God will hear any individual's requests, let alone the rest of the nations of the world. And so he's asking God to hear their prayers. And the amazing thing is that God agrees to. As the story goes on into chapter 7, God's glory comes and fills the temple. And God appears to Solomon in chapter 7, verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifice. If I close the sky so there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Guys, this is amazing, stunning grace from our Creator God. It's not something that He had to do. It's not something that was easy, and yet He offers graciously to hear the prayers of Israel. Now, unfortunately, I have to pause here and comment a little bit more on that final verse that's up there, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. It saddens me that sometimes I hear this verse lifted out of context and applied to modern Christians and modern nations. I'm not sure if you've heard this before. I heard it when I was over in Vanuatu, where people thought Vanuatu's got a whole bunch of active volcanoes. And there was a stream of Christian thinking that thought, well, the reason these volcanoes are going off is because Vanuatu as a nation is sinning against God. And what we need to do is help Vanuatu to repent of their sin and humble themselves and turn back to God in prayer. And if we do that, then God will heal our land, calm down the volcanoes. I haven't just heard it over there in Vanuatu, though. I have heard it here in Auckland and New Zealand. People using this verse as a call to prayer, as if the problems with our nation are because our nation has sinned against God. And that if if Christians in the nation can humble ourselves and come back to God in prayer, then God will heal our land. I wonder if you've heard that. I wonder if you've seen this verse used as a call to prayer. We need to recognize the context that this is coming in, the covenant that God has made with Israel. It's a unique covenant about a unique parcel of land. There's no other nation in history that God has made these promises to, to protect their particular land, that particular parcel of land that God had set aside for Israel to live in. 
And God hasn't said that for New Zealand. He hasn't said that for Vanuatu. He hasn't said that for America. So we can't pull these promises out and say, okay, well, if we pray, then God's going to heal our land. That's not the way it works. Don't use this verse in that way, please. But please do hear as we reflect on Chronicles that prayer is not something we can ever presume upon. It is a blessed privilege that any sinful human can approach God in prayer. Now, there are a couple of other things to note from Solomon's prayer. Uh, for, For Israel, notice that prayer was specifically tied to this temple. If God was to hear their prayer, they had to pray either at the temple or facing toward the temple. Uh, Humanity on the whole was still separated from God's presence. They were cast out from God's presence. But God had chosen this temple to dwell there. It became a place of his presence within the land. Uh, From this temple, he would hear his people's prayers, but not necessarily from anywhere else. He promises to hear them at the temple, not from anywhere else. Uh, The temple, therefore, becomes pivotal in the life of Israel. And then the final thing to notice from Solomon's prayer is that he's asking God to fulfill his promises. This is the essence of prayer throughout the Bible. Prayer is not so much about us kind of coming up with our list of wants, like our Christmas wish list, and then presenting that to God as if he's some Santa Claus. That's not the essence of prayer. Uh, Prayer is more about us knowing what God has promised and asking him to come good on that. So have a look at the way Solomon starts his prayer in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 14. Verse 14, he says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping his gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with their whole heart. You have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you have promised. To your servant, my father David. You see the basis of Solomon's prayer. He comes to God, recognizes God's character, that he's a God who keeps his promises. He thanks God for having kept his promises so far. Then he asks God to continue keeping his promises. That's the essence of prayer. So at this point in the story, a bit of a recap story so far. We've seen that as humans, we were created to be in a personal speaking relationship with God. But we crashed and burned, we we spurned God, we rebelled against Him, and as a result, we were cast out from His presence. Sin has made prayer a, a great difficulty. But God made a way for Israel to pray. After making sacrifices, they could approach God in His temple, and He would graciously hear their requests. That's the story so far. But sadly, as the story goes on, Israel, like the rest of humanity, they crash and burn too. Instead of coming to the true and living God in prayer in the way that he's graciously made possible, they continue to rebel against him and turn instead to false gods in prayer. They pray to these gods that people just made up. Perhaps people made them up because they were more convenient or sexier or perhaps they just thought they were easier to handle. As if these made up gods might come along with my agenda and give me my wish list of things. So instead of praying to the true God, they rejected him. And so God did in response what he has every right to do. He up and left the temple. He got out of there. In 586 BC, the Babylonians come down, the the nation up north of Israel, they come down in 586 BC and they destroy the temple. 
Listen to the way it's described in 2 Kings 23. It'll be up on screen for you. In spite of all that, the Lord did not turn from the fury of his great burning anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had provoked him with. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, just as I've removed Israel. I'll reject this city, Jerusalem, that I've chosen, and the temple about which I said my name will be there. I hope that after hearing Solomon's prayer about the temple, you can understand how devastating this is for Israel. God rejects the temple. He, he moves out. That one place where he said he'd hear prayer, he now removes his presence from there. This is what Israel deserves. But God, being good and generous, he promises a new covenant. God promises to give people a new heart and a new spirit so that no longer will they rebel against him. And within this new covenant, this new agreement, God promises a new temple. Uh, The last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel pick up this promise of a new temple. It's described in all these details. And as you read through the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, you start to get a sense that this is no ordinary building. We're not meant to be perceiving some earthly building as this new temple. And our suspicions are confirmed when we fast forward a few hundred years in history and we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes into history, steps into history, and on the the first chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, we read that God became flesh and took up residence among us. That's who Jesus is. No longer does God dwell in some building made by human hands. He comes and he dwells amongst us in the flesh. Jesus, God with us. And then in John 2, uh, Jesus challenges the Jewish religious leaders of the time. He says to them, now they've rebuilt a temple by this point. It was their own temple. God didn't bless it. God didn't dwell there. They've rebuilt it. And Jesus challenges them and says, guys, knock down that temple and I'll build you another one in three days. And they're like, what the heck are you talking about? This took us 46 years to build. Who can build a building in three days? But Jesus isn't talking about an earthly building. He's talking about himself as he goes on to die and then rise again to new life three days later. So the new temple promised for the new covenant is not some physical building. It is the Lord Jesus himself. With Jesus, there is no barrier to prayer. With Jesus, we can come towards God and have him hear us because in Jesus, our rebellion against God, our weight of sin, that finally gets dealt with. So remember all those sacrifices that Solomon had to make before dedicating the temple, those thousands of sheep and cattle? They were all pointing forward to the time when the true sacrifice, the one true sacrifice that could really deal with sin, would come into the world. Jesus, in his death, is the one sacrifice that really deals with our weight of sin. He dies in our place, substituted in for us, taking on himself the penalty that you and I deserve. He died so that we could come back into relationship with God. Amazing work of Jesus on the cross that we'll be exploring in more detail tomorrow night at Going Deeper. Do come along there to think with us about the impact of Jesus' death. Now, through Jesus, we as Christians have the most amazing privilege of prayer. As we come to John chapter 4, which Edmund read out for us earlier, Jesus teaches us that we live in a time now where we don't need a temple. Instead of needing to go to some physical temple or a physical geographical place for God to hear us, we just need to go to Jesus. 
as we offer up our prayers in Jesus' name, God hears us. See, to pray in Jesus' name, it's not just tacking on some magical phrase at the end of our prayer. It's not just doing something out of habit because Christians have done that for a while. It has great meaning to pray in Jesus' name. It's a recognition that the only way we can approach God, that the only reason we can think that we can come to God and bring our requests to Him is because God the Son, the Lord Jesus, has died in our place, taking away that barrier of sin that cut us off from God's presence. That's what it is to pray in Jesus' name. To come pleading no merits of our own. To come not saying, well, I've got a right to be here. But to come saying, the only right I have to be here is Jesus. It's kind of like when you're a kid in school and the teacher would send you on an errand. I don't know if you were trusted enough to be sent on errands as a kid at school. Perhaps you were the naughty one that the teacher didn't trust at all. But imagine you were the trustworthy one. When the teacher sends you on that errand, and perhaps they send you to the office to deliver a message to the office ladies you actually have no right as a child on your own to go and order the office ladies around, do you? You've got no authority on your own to go in and bring that message to them and tell them what to be doing. But the teacher who has sent you on that errand, if you come in that teacher's name, then you come with their authority. That's what it's like when we pray in Jesus' name. We're saying, I'm not coming here on my own. I've got no right to be here before you, God, but I come with Jesus because he has died in my place. And so I approach you confidently I have noticed something around church that I just want to quickly correct again. I've noticed a tendency that some of us have to pray and end our prayers, not with in Jesus' name, but with in your name. Uh, It might seem like a little thing, but I want you to realize that it actually betrays a failure to grasp the the privilege that it is to come to God in prayer. Uh, It shows that we're not quite thinking about the Trinity rightly and, and that perhaps we are thinking we've got a right to come before God. Praying in Jesus' name reminds us each and every time that we've got no right to be there, that our only hope is that to approach God the Father through God the Son. And praying in Jesus' name also means, and this one's amazing, we can pray to God anywhere and anytime. That's the upshot of the fact that we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need to wait to come to church on Sunday before we pray to God. We don't need to go to some special building, some special prayer room. We don't need to wait for set times of prayer we as Christians can pray anywhere and any time. Now, notice here that Christian prayer is different to much other religious prayer. It's way more amazing than other religious prayer. In, in other religions, there might be set times for prayer, perhaps twice a day or three times a day or five times a day. And those are the moments where everyone comes together to pray. Uh, in other religions, there will be special locations where you're perceived to be closer to the divine as if in those places you're more likely to be heard. But friends, for you and I, as we come to God in Jesus' name, we can pray when we're on the toilet. We can pray when we're in the shower. We can pray when we're coming into uni on the bus. We can pray when we're at uni, when we're at work, when we're driving to work, when we're driving from work. We can pray when we're about to sit down for a meal. We can pray as we're falling asleep at night. Or we can pray at church. There's no limit to the place or the time that we can be praying. In fact, God urges us to pray. Ephesians 6 verse 18. God urges us to pray at all times in the Spirit. God urges us to devote ourselves to prayer. Colossians 4 verse 2. (coughs) See, I wonder if you've ever had this conversation with a, a Muslim where Muslims actually have a critique of Christianity. They perceive that Christians are far less devout, far less devoted than they are. 
Because for the Muslim, right, there's five times of prayer a day where the bell rings and they all have to go to their special location and, and pray. And they see Christians not praying with that regularity and they think, man, you Christians are not really devoted to your God. But friends, I hope that this critique is not true of you. Because as Christians, we don't need five special times to be praying throughout the day. We can pray anywhere, anytime. And I hope that for you, you are praying far more than five times a day. That you are praying as God urges us at all times in the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be uttering verbal requests to God all the time. That would make life very difficult for those who can't really multitask. Hard to think and verbalize a prayer while you're doing something else. It's not saying that. But God is urging us to recognize that every moment of our lives as Christians is lived in his presence, making every moment of our lives an opportunity for prayer. God's urging us to live in that awareness that every moment of our lives is being offered to him in his presence. We don't section off segments of our life and say, okay, well, here's my God bit, and now I'm going to go and get on with the rest of life bit. Every section of our life, every moment, every action we take, we should be able to ask God to come and inspect it. And we should be able to ask him to bless it. So if you're ever doing something that you think, well, actually, I don't want God to be here right now. Actually, I don't want God to see this. If you're ever doing something and you think, I'm not sure that God could bless this action. Well, you need to stop that. Because we need to be praying at all times. We need to be devoting ourselves to prayer. I hope it's the case that as you're waking up in the morning, you're recognizing that the only reason you're awake is because God has woken you up and given you breath for that day. And and you're starting off your day in the awareness of God's presence, praying to him, thanking you for waking you up. I hope that as you are going off to work, you're recognizing in the car that it's God sustaining you and that he's got plans for you at work, plans for you to speak to your colleagues, plans for you to honor and love those around you. I hope you're recognizing as you're relating to your family that that you're praying and inviting God and offering to God those moments of interaction and asking him to help you build others up and praying for them. There's so many opportunities we have to be praying as Christians. There's no limit to the opportunities. Don't let the Muslim critique be true of us, that we are less devoted and less devout. We can pray at all times, anywhere, anytime as we pray in Jesus' name. Once we grasp this kind of concept of praying in Jesus' name, we see that it also means praying for the things that Jesus is concerned about. See, when the teacher gives you that errand and you go off to the office to to ask for the thing that the teacher's asked you to do, you can't just also come with your own demands and go, hey, I'd really like you to do this as well. You've got no authority to do that. To pray in Jesus' name means that we're praying for the things that he is concerned about. There's a bit of a difference with us and God. God does urge us and encourage us that if anything is causing you anxiety, bring that to him in prayer. He cares. If you've been in Connect Group, you would have seen that over the last couple of weeks. In Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7, God says, whatever you're anxious about, pray about it, and God will hear you. There's nothing off limits in our prayers to God. But we need to come back to the start of this story and recognize that we are creatures designed to bear God's image and rule over the world under his rule. God is doing something in this world and he wants us to search out his plan, search out his desires and pray for them alongside him. We're meant to be like Solomon, praying that God would keep his promises. If you're here last week and heard that great sermon, it's what Jesus encouraged us to do, to pray your kingdom come. That's what God is doing in this world. We don't have to search very far. God's made his plans known in the scriptures. As we read the Bible, the Bible shapes our prayers. We ask God to keep his promises. 
Uh, This helps us understand some of those times when we feel like God isn't answering our prayers. Perhaps it's the case that we're not praying for what God desires. Uh, James puts it very starkly, James 4. He says, You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your evil desires. So if you are just kind of praying as if you're pulling out your Santa wish list and bringing that to God as if God should come through on what you want, God may not say yes to that. You may be asking for things that are not good. You may very well be like the child in the supermarket nagging its parents going, I want ice cream, I want ice cream, I really want ice cream. And then throwing a tantrum when your loving father says, no, ice cream's not good for you. You shouldn't eat it all the time. We might be like God asking for these things that we think will be good for us and yet God's saying no, no. But we can confidently pray when we're praying in line with God's promises and we know that God is working those things out. So as we grow to know God, our desires start to line up with God's desires and then we pray well. We pray for the world, that God would be known in every nation, tribe and language that God would raise up gospel proclaimers to take his message of salvation to the world. We pray for our nation that God would help our leaders to lead with wisdom and justice and integrity so that we can live quiet and godly lives. We pray for our church that God would grow us in godliness and love and our knowledge of him. We pray for ourselves that God would teach us to live for him in each and every moment. See, these are bigger prayers. These are more vital prayers than praying for the health of my auntie's dog or praying that I get straight A's throughout university. Okay to pray about those things if you're anxious about them, but God's got bigger, more vital concerns that he's carrying out in the world that he calls us to join with him and pray for as we pray in Jesus' name. And when we're praying like that, when Christian prayer has this great expression, it's an expression of our restored relationship with God. That relationship that God created at the very start, that personal speaking relationship. As Christians, we get to come back into that, but even better. And we await its fulfillment in the new creation. In prayer, we get a foretaste of the relationship that we're going to have with God when Jesus returns. See, the story isn't over yet. The story of the Bible awaits a future when Jesus will return and bring in the fullness of his kingdom. And at that point, we will see God face to face. We'll have immediate, full access to God the Father. It'll be like when God walked in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis, but even better. So friends, I want you to think back over the past week, month, year of your prayers. Have you been taking prayer for granted? Have you been treating it like electricity, just kind of assuming it's going to be there, not really wondering at how marvelous it is? Have you been treating God like that friend where you just tap out for a month and assume that whenever you come back, it's all going to be okay? Friends, God has worked wonderfully to give us an amazing privilege in prayer. That we as sinners can approach Him, the Creator God, and bring our requests to Him. That anywhere and any time we can offer up our desires to God in the name of Christ, in the help of His Spirit, confessing our sins, and thanking him for his many mercies. Amazing wonder. An amazing privilege. And we're going to enjoy that privilege now. I want to give you a minute, just personally, 
in response to what you've heard, to, to just come to God in prayer. In the quietness of your heart, take a minute now to bring your requests and your thankfulness to God. Then after that, I'm going to pray and then Angela's going to lead us in an extended time of prayer. But take a minute now, just you and God, enjoying prayer. Father, we are amazed at the privilege you have given us to come before you in prayer. You are the holy, sovereign creator of all. And we are rebels, traitors, who turned against you and tried to put the crown on our own heads. Our Father, thank you for dealing with our sin. Thank you for including us in your plan for this world. Thank you for giving us the joy of joining you as you achieve your purposes in this world. May your kingdom come. May your name be honoured as holy in our country and across the globe. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as I said, Angela's going to come now and lead us in an extended time of prayer for our world and our nation and our church. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly come before your throne of grace with nothing of our own except the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you hear our prayers and that we can be confident that your hand is always at work, bringing about your plans and purposes according to your sovereign will. We lift our hearts in praise to you as our creator, sustainer, and author of salvation. You number the stars in the sky just as you number the days we have. You carve valleys and raise mountains, just as you form us in our mother's womb. You fill the earth with all kinds of vegetation and creatures, just as you distribute the church with all kinds of gifts. Most importantly, we thank you for giving us Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, taking on the punishment that we deserve for rejecting and rebelling against you. And by almighty hand, you raised Jesus from the dead, and in him we have a sure hope that sin and death is conquered. Loving Father, Please remember your children and their afflictions. We ask that you help our brothers and sisters in China, Ethiopia, Iran, and many more who are forced to meet in underground churches because of political, religious, or social oppression. Remove all fear of man in the face of persecution 
and instill in their heart a fear of the Lord. Please fill their hearts with your love for their persecutors, that they too may find hope and eternal life in Christ. We pray for our government that they would seek the welfare of the people and take seriously the responsibility given to them to govern with righteousness, justice, and peace. We pray for those who do not yet recognize Jesus for who he is in Auckland. Please stir their hearts to seek you. Open their eyes to see Jesus more clearly through your word, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. May you empower your church by the Holy Spirit to be strong and courageous, proclaiming the gospel in truth and deed, shining as lights in the city that so desperately need to know Christ. Please fill every gospel worker, whether pastors, evangelists, church planters, and teachers, with passion for bringing others to know and grow in their love and knowledge of you. We ask that you would safely lead each one to those whose hearts you have already prepared, granting them joy, wisdom, and freedom in the midst of multiple challenges. Please multiply, multiply a hundredfold the spiritual fruit of every church planted. And thank you so much that we are able to gather week in and week out as a church family. May we all be disciple makers here at Union Church, teaching one another in wisdom, love, and humility, and unleashed as missionaries in our workplace, university, and community. We thank you so much for the privilege it is to partner with you through prayer for the growth of your kingdom. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.